Uh, please open your Bibles to James chapter 2. Uh, our passage for the second week in a row is James 2, 14 to 26. James 2, 14 to 26. And let's begin by reading this passage together. James 2, 14 to 26. James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. As psychology became popularized in the 20th century, along with it has come an increase in the use of technical terms to refer to common fears. You're probably already familiar with many of the terms used for the more ordinary fears that people encounter. Arachnophobia, for instance, refers to the fear of spiders. Claustrophobia refers to the fear of tight spaces. Agoraphobia, the fear of open or crowded spaces. Xenophobia, the fear of the unknown. In fact, there's even phobophobia. That's the fear of fear. You know how FDR once said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. He was basically saying we should all have phobophobia. I wonder if you've ever heard of this term before. Taphophobia. Taphophobia. You guys know what that is? It's the fear of being buried alive. Perhaps you suffer from taphophobia. If you did, you wouldn't be uh, that unusual. It's a fear that's shared by a lot more people than you might think. Uh, General George Washington, for example, was uh, probably one of the more genuinely fearless soldiers who's ever lived. His willingness to charge into the heart of battle to urge his men on verged at times on the edge of suicidal. He simply didn't fear death. And yet, as brave as George Washington was in combat, there was one thing he did fear... And that was being buried alive. He wasn't afraid to die, he was just afraid of being buried before he had died. In fact, he was so afraid of being buried alive that on his deathbed he specifically requested that he not be put into the vault for at least two days after he had died so as to make sure that he was dead before he was buried. Taphophobia is so common that it led to the development of safety coffins in the 18th and 19th centuries. 
Uh, These were coffins designed to help a person buried alive to notify others that they were still alive. Uh, There were a number of different patents developed for these types of coffins, but probably the most common design incorporated some type of bell above the grave which could be rung from inside the casket by the presumed corpse. Of course, this may all seem a bit extreme. After all, it's probably not very likely that someone is going to be buried alive, although it's not unheard of. But as unlikely as that scenario is, I don't think it's very hard to understand this fear either. There's certainly no doubt that there would be very few fates more terrifying than to wake up in pitch black darkness, realize that you've been buried alive, and know that there is no one who can hear your screams, no one that can hear your cries for help, and no way to dig yourself out of your own grave. And yet as terrifying as it is to consider the prospect of being buried alive, there's a fate that's still more horrifying than that. And that's being buried dead as in spiritually dead. See, as awful as it would be to be buried alive, the suffering and torment of that fate would only last for a few moments, perhaps hours at best. But if you enter the grave spiritually dead, the suffering that will follow that kind of fate will stretch on into eternity. Yes, it would be awful to be buried alive. But it would be still more awful to be buried truly dead. Because... That is the kind of grave from which you will never emerge. At the beginning of last week's message, I explained that over the years, doctors have worked towards a definition of death that would prevent these kinds of tragedies from taking place in the physical realm. Uh, This actually has been particularly relevant in the realm of euthanasia as advances in medical technology have forced physicians to come uh, to to grips with definitions for death that are able to better equip families and even the court systems uh, to determine when it's ethically permissible to remove a patient from life support. Uh, These types of questions, I don't know if you realize this or not, they actually became incredibly relevant right here in Carthage, Missouri uh, back in 1983. When 25-year-old Nancy Cruzan was thrown into a water-filled ditch in a car accident just outside of town. Nancy spent several minutes face down in the water before paramedics arrived on the scene. And though the paramedics were able to resuscitate her, she never regained consciousness. Nancy didn't require any machines to help her heart pump or lungs breathe. She just needed a, a feeding tube to provide her body with nourishment. Even still, she was caught in this persistent vegetative state. After several years of watching Nancy in this condition, never seeing her improve, the family finally decided that they wanted to remove the feeding tube and let Nancy die. The ethical questions raised by this decision led to a legal battle that eventually escalated all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, where Cruzan versus Director, Missouri Department of Health, became the very first right-to-die case to be decided by the Supreme Court. Cases such as this one are obviously very hard to decide. After all, it's no small thing to decide to remove a feeding tube or to take someone off of life support because when you take that step, you're potentially ending their life and that's a decision that can't be undone later on. And so again, doctors have worked very hard to arrive at a more and more precise definition of death so that the ethics of these types of situations as they arise might be made clearer. Uh, We as Christians need to work just as hard to arrive at the same kind of precision spiritually. But not simply so that we can determine the answers to ethical or or moral questions, but to theological ones, and to theological questions of the greatest significance. 
After all, when we start asking, what does spiritual life look like? And what does spiritual death look like? What we're really asking is, what constitutes salvation and what does not? What does it mean to be saved? What does it look like and what does it not? And when we we ask those types of questions, we're wrestling with the very heart of the gospel. Meaning that these aren't just academic questions. These are some of the most important questions that we'll ever address as, as Christians because these are the types of questions that both define our faith and along with our faith, even our very own eternal destiny. Again, if it's a, if it's a weighty matter to decide whether or not someone is physically dead and thus able to be removed from life support, then you should certainly feel the pressure when arriving at the same kinds of decisions spiritually, since the effects of these types of decisions are going to stretch on into eternity. So then, what's the answer? How can we discern the difference between spiritual life and spiritual death? That's a question that we're exploring in James 2, 14-26. I noted in last week's message that there are often several criteria that physicians will use in determining the presence or absence of physical life. Uh, Chief among these are the heartbeat, uh, respiration, even the presence of brain waves. James is no different. He too uses several criteria when discussing the presence of spiritual life. In fact, what's really interesting is that just like a modern-day physician, James doesn't just assume that the presence of any one or more of these criteria necessarily indicates the presence of life itself. Instead, he looks at the total package. Doctors, for instance, don't assume that a person is alive simply because a life support system is making their heart beat and their lungs breathe. No, there needs to be the presence of brain waves as well. But neither do they pronounce someone dead simply because they're in a persistent vegetative state. If you take a person off of life support and their heart still beats and they're able to breathe on their own, as was the case with Nancy Cruzan, then it's assumed that they're still alive. So doctors are looking at the total package. And James is much the same way. We saw this last week when we examined the first of two vital signs that James looks for in this passage, and that's movement. Movement. James says, verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Uh, The spirit, you you will recall, I said, refers to the immaterial part of the person. And in Scripture, it's associated with the the movement or animation of the body. Just as the Spirit of God is there hovering over the faces of the waters in Genesis 1, and just as He's required to give life to spiritually dead people, so also is a person's spirit associated with the presence of the physical animation of life. Therefore, so long as a person is moving, it's assumed that they're alive. But when they stop moving, their spirit has departed. That's the analogy that James is going for when he says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, I pointed out last week that this passage in James has actually created a lot of controversy over the years because in it, James says, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That 
seems to contradict the Apostle Paul, who says that we're saved by faith and not by our works. But this contradiction is easily resolved when one considers that in verse 22, James says, with reference to Abraham's works, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. In other words, James doesn't have any problem with the idea that salvation is received through faith alone, or even that faith precedes works and serves as the basis for one's works. He's just saying that while salvation is indeed by grace alone, through faith alone, at the same time, the faith that saves is never truly alone. It is inevitably accompanied by the quality of one's actions, which are the fruit or the evidence of their faith. In fact, if I could put it like this, there are actually three vital signs in this passage. I know I said last week that there are only two, but that's just because the third vital sign, which is faith, is more or less assumed here from the outset. James most certainly isn't saying that a person will be saved apart from faith. He would even agree that faith is really the most essential part. All he's saying is that a bare faith, a naked faith, a faith that is unaccompanied by the signs of life is in fact a dead faith. It's very much like how doctors assess life today. The main thing that doctors are looking for when it comes to assessing the presence of life is the activity of the brain. Again, if a machine is pumping blood and oxygen through a person's body, it's assumed they're dead, even though technically their body is still moving and showing signs of life. James would see it the same way. Without the brain, without faith, it doesn't matter what kind of movement is there, a person is most assuredly dead. But how do doctors know that the brain is still alive? Well, it's by the beating of the heart and the movement of the lungs. And that's not only because the, the, the brain regulates those functions, but because the brain needs the oxygen supplied through the blood in order to survive. So if the heart stops beating, or if the lungs stop breathing for any substantial period of time, they don't even need an EEG or anything like that because it's obvious that the person is dead. And that's what, what James is saying as well. Yes, faith is what matters, but at the same time, if there's no movement, if the patient has stopped breathing for any substantial period of time, then we can assume that the brain is dead. The only difference in this case is that we can make this assumption not because works animate faith, giving it life, but rather because it's the other way around. Faith gives life to a person's soul and animates their works. Just as the brain stem directs the lungs to breathe and the heart to beat, so also does faith cause the Christian to move. In fact, I would take the analogy even one step further. Uh, if you recall, I said last week that in Scripture... Death is often associated with the cessation of breathing. That's the movement that James is talking about For when he, when he says, for as the body without the spirit is dead. He's referring to that moment when the person stops breathing and their spirit departs. Now, the word for spirit in the Hebrew is even the same word uh, as uh, the Hebrew uses for breath, ruach. It's translated either as breath or spirit, or even wind, depending on the context. 
Because the Spirit is seen as this unmaterial, invisible thing, or in the case of the Holy Spirit, an immaterial, invisible person who energizes and animates life. That's most clearly represented in the breath. So long as a person's chest heaves up and down, it's evident that their spirit is resident in them. When their breathing stops, on the other hand, it's departed. Well, just as doctors look to the function of these three main organs to assess the presence of physical life, the brain, the heart, and the lungs, with the chief of these being the function of the brain, so also does James look for three similar vital signs. The chief of these, again, the one that he assumes is the brain, as represented by faith. That's the main thing that James would agree absolutely must be present for the soul to be alive. But how do you know that such faith is present? How do you know that the brain is alive? Again, that's what James is assessing in this passage. He's trying to help the Christian discern whether or not the brain is alive. And the first thing that James says to look for is movement. That's the equivalent to respiration. There needs to be some sign of breath in the person, because if there's not, then the brain is clearly dead. So now you can probably guess what the next vital sign is. And that's the pulse. We've already covered the importance of the brain and the lungs in assessing spiritual life, and now we move on to the heart, as is represented by love. That's our second vital sign in this passage. James says that a living faith isn't only a moving faith, it's a loving faith. In other words, just like it's possible, I don't, I don't even know if you realize this or not, but just like it's possible for a corpse to sometimes exhibit some types of movement and still be dead, so also it's possible for a spiritually dead person to show some signs of movement and still be dead. So it's not just the mere presence of movement that matters. Dead bodies will sometimes twitch for a little while after the person has died. I don't even know if you realize this is kind of morbid. I'll tell you anyways, though. But, but sometimes they'll even belch and moan as the gas that's stored up in their body is expelled. It passes over their vocal cords. So it isn't the mere presence of movement that matters because dead bodies can sometimes move and act a little bit like a person who still has some life in them. No, it's the quality of the movement that matters. This is reflected in the 1968 definition of death that I shared with you from Harvard Medical School last week. The definition included a lack of response to external stimuli and no elicitable reflexes. In other words, a corpse may twitch. It may even moan. But it won't say ouch and pull its hand back when you prick it with a pin. That's the the difference in the type of movement exhibited by a real live person in a corpse. And that's what we see James developing in this passage as well. It isn't just the, the, the mere presence of movement that matters, but the type. It's more than possible for a spiritually dead person to belch something that sounds like a profession of faith. And they can even flop around and sort of look religious in their actions. But true religion as James explained at the end of chapter 1, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So there's your difference right there between the twitch of the spiritually dead and the life-affirming movement of a believer. The believer doesn't just do religious actions. They actually love other people. 
We see this point established at a few different places, but the most significant of which is the context. Here in verses 15 to 16, James illustrates the necessity of works with this hypothetical scenario wherein a poor brother or sister in Christ comes in need of food and clothing and is sent away without any sort of physical provision, just a blessing and a prayer. And James asks the question, what good is that? That question draws us back to verse 14 where James opens this passage by saying, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So we can probably infer that, that love is the chief work that James has in mind when he speaks of the necessity of a faith evidenced by works in this passage. But this conclusion is made even stronger when we consider where in this dialogue James is starting to ask these types of questions. Back when we were at the end of chapter 1, I explained that verses 19 to 27 of that chapter are really the heading for the whole rest of this epistle. And in that passage, I noted that James states that pure and undefiled religion, meaning religion that is true and whole and undivided, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And that's because, as James explains back in verses 22 to 25 of chapter 1, true faith transforms our understanding of our relationship to God and to others such that if we believe this message of salvation, then we cannot help but go and love other people. He even goes so far as to refer to this message as the law of liberty, meaning the the law that flows out of our liberty, out of our salvation. Just as the nation of Israel had laws that were founded upon and shaped by their deliverance from Egypt, so also does the Christian have a set of obligations that they must obey because they've been freed from slavery to sin to serve the living and true God. And these obligations are shaped by their identity in Christ. So in this sense, faith produces works. Again, James even goes so far as to compare this law of liberty to a mirror. And the idea is that the person who walks away from this standard and doesn't do what it commands, they've actually forgotten who they are. In short, it's a reflection of their faith. The one who doesn't do, they either do not see themselves in the mirror, meaning they don't believe the kinds of truths that the gospel proclaims about them, or at the very least, they've forgotten who they are. As we jump down into chapter 2, James begins to then flesh out what this law of liberty is. He calls it the royal law in verse 8. Probably a reference to the fact that this is how his brother, Jesus, summarized the law. And he says that this royal law is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love, we see, is the obligation that flows out of the gospel. It's the standard that we're obligated to obey. As James continues through this passage, he explains why this is so in verses 12 to 13, saying, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The idea is that through the gospel, we ask God to show us compassion and to be gracious to us in spite of our sins. And so if that's the standard that by which we hope to be judged, then justice dictates that we actually go and demonstrate the same grace and compassion to others. This is what James means when he says in verse 10, for, whatever the whole, uh, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable to all of it. 
There's only one lawgiver who gives one law. And a person is therefore accountable to keep all the law by which they will be judged. And so if one wants to be judged by the law of liberty, if their desire is for God to show them mercy, then righteousness therefore dictates that they live by the same sort of standard by which they hope to be judged. This is the same point that Jesus makes in Luke 6, 37-38. When He says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgiven, you will be forgiven. Given, it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The idea, once again, is that the person who believes this message and hopes to be redeemed through it, which now we can, it will live according to the obligations that flow out of it, and that means love. Of course, James says all of this within the context of the apparent court case that we see unfolding in chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. In fact, you might remember that the initial discussion about the law of liberty occurred within the context of James' directions about how to approach and resolve conflict in the church. As we move through the beginning of chapter 2, those directions are further developed as James envisions this church tribunal taking place. And James urges his listeners not to show partiality. It would seem that the dispute which the church is hearing is between a richer and poorer brother. Uh, From what we see at the beginning of chapter 5, this might even be a dispute over the payment of wages. James is telling his readers that to show partiality for the richer brother in this case is to transgress the law of liberty since they're mistreating the poor brother and refusing to show him mercy. You come now to verses 14 to 26. And James follows up that discussion by saying that a faith that tells the brother and sister in need of daily food and clothing, go in peace, be warmed and filled, he says it's vain and worthless and unable to save the soul. And hopefully I think you can start to see where James is going here. It would seem that James has actually not changed subjects, and he won't, by the way, until almost the very end of this book. He's still talking about conflicts, and he's still talking about the discrimination that's being practiced between richer and poor brethren. It's likely that he's addressing this tribunal, which has done nothing to sincerely address the brothers' grievances. They've shown partiality towards the richer brother and is sending the poor brother away with nothing to tend to his daily needs. They're not disassociating themselves from the poor brother so much as they are failing to adequately care for him. In other words, the actions that James is referring to in this context is still quite clearly love. He hasn't changed the subject from the end of chapter 1 all the way up until now. He's still concerned about the practice of Christian love. James sees this lack of care in this context and referring to this sort of faith, he says, what good is that? And from the context, we already know the answer to that question. The one who acts this way It's not that they're saved by their works. It's that their lack of faith, their lack of works, most specifically their lack of love, indicates that they don't truly believe. Because there's no way that a person can look into the gospel, believe that message, and everything it proclaims about their spiritual poverty and their need for mercy, and then turn around and ignore the obligations that flow out of that covenant. And so the one who does not love, it's very evident what their problem is. Their problem is that they do not believe. 
James then illustrates the logic of this statement with the examples of Abraham and Rahab. I spoke quite a bit about the significance of Abraham last week. Uh, Abraham, you'll remember, is really the, the paradigm for faith and obedience for the Old Testament Jew. This is why Paul chose to go to his example in order to explain the the basis for justification in the Old Testament, both in Romans 4 and then again in Galatians 3. So if you want to see the relationship between faith and works, that's the perfect place to go. And Abraham clearly demonstrates that faith precedes works. Both James and Paul understand this point. They, They just emphasize the relationship from different angles to deal with two different types of people who want to abuse the nature of this relationship. For those who want to place works before faith as the basis of salvation, Paul says, hey, look at Abraham. He was justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And then he points to the justification that occurs in Genesis 15 when Abraham believed the promise of God and the Scripture says it was credited to him as righteousness. And then to those who want to take that point to the other extreme and say, see, it doesn't matter what you do so long as you have faith. James says, wait a second. Look at Abraham. Wasn't his faith evidenced by his works? So how can you say that you're justified by faith apart from works? And again, that's really what James is after here. He's not attacking the idea of justification by faith alone and not works. He's attacking the idea of a faith that exists apart from works. He's saying that the one inevitably flows from the other. And just like Paul, Abraham is his proof. That's his go-to, which so adequately explains the, the nature of this relationship between faith and works. So it's very easy to understand why Abraham is mentioned here. It's because Abraham, better than anyone else, illustrates the appropriate sequence in this faith-works relationship. What's less clear is why, after making this point with Abraham, James then feels the need to address the issue again, only this time uh, with a relatively minor figure in Scripture, and that's the prostitute Rahab. However, if you're following James' train of thought, the significance of her inclusion, I think, becomes pretty apparent. First, Rahab is the ultimate demonstration of the fact that it is indeed in accordance with one's faith that one is saved and not their personal righteousness. After all, while the Jews tended to view Abraham in a favorable light as one who is largely characterized by his obedience to God and thus might be construed as a more or less righteous individual... Uh, for example, uh, one pseudographical Jewish work says that Abraham was, quote, perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Another says that he did not sin against God. Still another that no one has been found like him in glory. The idea is Abraham was viewed by the Jew as a paragon of righteousness and thus one that might be seen as counted righteous on the basis of works. Not only do James and Paul both agree that the example of Abraham actually directly contradicts that understanding of salvation, but James even goes a step further by reminding his readers that Rahab, a prostitute, was also saved, most definitely not on the basis of her deeds, but on the basis of her faith. In other words, James could be balancing out his arguments so he won't be misunderstood. Just as every Jew would have looked at Abraham as the the ultimate example of faith and obedience, so also did they look at Rahab as the supreme proselyte. I mean, you think about it, right? She's most definitely not renowned for upstanding moral character. But she's identified by all as someone who has accepted into the covenant promises of Israel in spite of her sin. Uh, 
So if ever there was someone that demonstrated that salvation is entirely on the basis of faith and not their personal righteousness, it's most definitely Rahab. And James draws this contrast out. Note here in verse 21, he's careful to call Abraham our father, meaning that the relationship that Abraham enjoyed with God is paradigmatic for the Jewish people. If if his faith was evidenced by his works, and this is the pattern that's to be followed by every other Jew who believes, after all, it's on the basis of that faith that God makes his covenant with Abraham. Then as James gets down to verse 25, he's just as careful to call Rahab the prostitute. In other words, her profession is relevant to this argument. And it's relevant in that it demonstrates that Rahab is not saved by her works. And yet Rahab was also not saved without works either. And that's the second reason why James would go to this example. Rahab was most definitely saved by faith and not on the basis of her righteousness, and yet her faith was manifested with a particular set of actions, and without those actions, actions she would not have been saved. James makes this point in drawing attention to the fact that she was uh, justified by works, quote, when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. In other words, the point is not simply that Rahab believed in God. That much was evident when we, when, when we uh, first hear of her receiving the spies and telling them how she knew that the Lord had given Israel the land because she had heard the report of what God did to the peoples across the Jordan. So Rahab clearly had faith. She believed the truth about Israel's God. But that wasn't just some kind of mental assent. No, it demonstrated itself in action as she quickly aligned herself with Israel by helping the spies. It was a faith that revealed itself in concrete action. She lied to the spies. Uh, not Actually, not lied to the spies. She lied to protect the spies. She gave them instructions for a safe return, and then she hung a scarlet cord from her window as per their, their instructions. Of course, depending on your position on lying and whether or not it's ever permissible to lie, not all those actions are necessarily commendable, Right, But all the same, the point is that her faith was manifested in concrete action. And you could even say that apart from this action, Rahab would not have been saved. At least not physically. After all, if she hadn't helped the spies, then she wouldn't have been spared from the destruction of Jericho. It was on the basis of her willingness to help that they agreed to spare her and her family. Without that type of concrete action, there would be no uh, basis for the spies to believe that she truly stood with the people of Israel rather than the people of Jericho. In the same way, the spies told her that even though she had helped them, she would not be spared if she didn't hang the scarlet cord from her window. It was the scarlet cord that signaled to the people of Israel, here lives Rahab, the one who believes in the power of God and helped us. It's not that the cord was the basis of Rahab's salvation or that it somehow earned her favor from the spies. No, that came from the help that she supplied. Rather, the point behind the cord was so that Israel could uh, be able to distinguish her from the rest of Jericho. They couldn't distinguish her from the rest of Jericho without it. In other words, her faith was the basis of her salvation because that's what led her to seek refuge in Israel. But at the same time, that faith was active along with her works and was completed by her works. And so clearly Rahab tends to further emphasize this point that James is trying to make, that one's works point back to their faith and are therefore critical in demonstrating that the person has exercised the sort of faith that saves. 
But perhaps most significant of all, in receiving the spies, Rahab was also viewed as a model of hospitality. And that point may be the one that James is really trying to drive at, since oddly enough, James refers to the spies in this verse not as spies, but as angeloi, which can be translated either as messengers or envoys. That's kind of odd, because they were most definitely not messengers or ambassadors of any sort. They were spies. And yet this word angeloi can also mean exactly what it sounds like, and that's angels. Angels are often simply referred to as messengers from the Lord, so James may be doing a play on words here, choosing to refer to the spies as angeloi in order to make another connection in the mind of his readers. And what would that connection be? Well, let me ask you, when you think of someone showing hospitality to angeloi, who do you think of? Is it not Abraham, right, who immediately before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah received the angels while camping at the Oaks of Mamre? That's what several commentators think is going on here. James is talking about the importance of hospitality up in verses 15 to 16, of caring for the daily needs of the brethren. And then in order to demonstrate the importance between that kind of heart and justifying faith, He selects two of the most significant examples of hospitality in the Old Testament, Abraham and Rahab, in order to demonstrate how their charity served as a demonstration of their justification and even led to their salvation. That might be a little bit of a stretch, seeing as how James doesn't go to Genesis 18 when speaking of Abraham's works, but instead to the near sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22. But it's hard to explain why James uses this word angeloi otherwise. And it certainly seems to fit the context. So Rahab is probably brought up as further evidence of the fact that it is love or mercy or charity specifically that reveals saving faith. All in all, the overall picture that James is presenting here is one that's very similar to what we find in other parts of the New Testament. For example, I said last week that the way James uses justified here, he's looking more to the day of one's judgment rather than to the day of one's initial salvation. Well, in Matthew 25, Jesus says that the same thing that James says here, that on the day of judgment, a person will be either approved or condemned, not simply by their deeds, but by their love specifically. I mentioned this last week. Jesus says, Matthew 25, with reference to those who loved the brethren, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then they'll say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then he turns around and he says the exact same thing to those who did not love the brethren, as he condemns them. He'll say, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. This is more or less the same thing that James is saying here in this passage. 
True religion is revealed in the care for the orphan and the widow. It's revealed in the care for the brethren. It's revealed such that Jesus makes a determination on who will enter His kingdom and who will not based on this kind of love. And how can He do that? Well, again, Jesus explains. He says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. In other words, one's love for Christ is revealed by one's love for the brethren. So if one does not love the brethren, then it's a sign that they most definitely do not love Christ. It's the same thing in John 15. You know how I keep going back to John 15 to point out that Jesus says that every branch that does not bear fruit is taken away, thrown into the fire, and burned. Well, that begs the question, what constitutes fruit? Is it evangelistic fruit? Is it, you know, how many people are saved by me, you know, through my proclamation of the word? Or is it a change in my moral conduct? Is that the fruit that Jesus is looking for? Uh, No, Jesus clarifies chiefly, it's love. Verses 12 to 14, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. He then reiterates, verses 16 to 17. He says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. It's the same point that Jesus makes just a couple chapters earlier, when after washing the disciples' feet, He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another By this, all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The evidence of faith is love. And the evidence of faith is love because we serve a king who loves and commands us to go and live as he lived and to love as he loved. So everyone who's a disciple, everyone who's been truly taught by Jesus and has received this royal law by faith, you will know them by their Christ-likeness, which is to say you will know them by their love. I think 1 John may capture the entire picture the best. If you're paying attention, the basic summary of what James says here is that saving faith is accompanied by three basic things. That's faith, obedience, and love. Well, if you study the book of 1 John, you'll find that John summarizes saving faith in the same way. He says that saving faith acknowledges the truth, it obeys, and even more importantly, it loves. For example, 1 John 2, 9 through 11. He says, Whoever says that he is the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness is blind at his eyes. 1 John 3, 11-18. He says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 
Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us uh, not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Think about that. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, closes his heart, how does God's love abide in him? He says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or truth. Does that sound at all familiar to you guys? It's almost like James and John had the same teacher, huh? 1 John 4, 7-12. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Now, at this point, there are two ways that we can approach what James is saying in this passage. First, we could take this passage and we could ask ourselves, am I a living, breathing Christian? Or am I the spiritual equivalent of a belching corpse? Is that what all my protestations of faith amount to? Are they little more than a spiritually dead body just so happening to release a little bit of air and sounding alive for a moment while still being very much spiritually dead? That's the approach that I took at the end of last week's message. We got to the end of our discussion on movement, and I said, so are you alive? Has there ever been a moment in your life where faith produced obedience because that's what faith will do? Or is your faith just talk? Because if it's all talk, then James would say you probably don't have faith. We could do the same thing this week, only this time we could do it with reference to love. I could point out how the total absence of a gospel-fueled love in your life may indicate that your faith's a sham. And I could urge you to examine yourselves for the same kind of evidence to the fact that your faith is real and that you've not been deceived into thinking that you belong to Christ prematurely. But I'll just point out that while I think that those types of examinations are sometimes helpful and even necessary, I'd just like to point out that that's actually not what James is doing here. Yes, James is talking about what a living faith looks like. But if you stop to think about it, he's not really bringing this issue up in order to question the faith of his readers. Instead, he's bringing it up in order to point out the inconsistency between the faith which he actually does think is there and their actions. And he's doing this in order to encourage them to act in a way that's consistent with their calling. Like James isn't trying to assert that maybe these aren't Christians. He's more or less assuming that they are, and he's saying, but this sort of mindset that you have about faith, that's most definitely not Christian. So get rid of it. Put it off. Renew your mind, because that, that thought doesn't belong. And that's more of the track I would encourage you to take this morning as well. You see, I realize there's always a decent chance that there are people sitting here in this room who don't actually believe the gospel. And so I don't mean to be cavalier when I say this, but but like James, I'm assuming that most of you are Christians. 
Like as helpful as it is to occasionally examine ourselves, we shouldn't do that to the point where you start to think that there's just no way that you can be assured of your salvation. You can. You can be assured of your salvation. For example, Paul famously says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. So again, the scripture does encourage a self-examination of our faith to, to test whether or not our faith is real. What's often missed is that right after this, Paul says, test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So like Paul is telling them to examine themselves, because in the course of defending his ministry, he's saying, listen, you guys know who I am, and you know who you are. My message is the standard, and you know it's true, because your faith is real. The point is, he expected them to realize that they are saved when they came under examination. And it's the same with you. So long as we understand that we're not talking perfection here, but only at least of some signs of life. You know, faint heartbeat, some breathing. Then I would assume that the vast majority of you would pass the test because your faith is real. No, you don't love perfectly, right? None of us do. But you do love. And as corrupted as your motives might be, there's still a real and genuine kernel of sincerity in it because the Spirit abides in you and is sanctifying you. So for the vast majority of you, I don't think that self-examination is probably the most helpful route here. The more helpful route, rather, is to be reminded that this is what faith looks like. And to be thus challenged to live according to this standard. You know, it's not uncommon for Christians, I think, to measure their growth solely by their doctrine. That's what they think demonstrates that they know God. That's what they think is the surest sign of their maturity, that they know Christ and know much about Him. And there's a measure of truth in this. Because again, faith does matter. So doctrine does matter. It is, you might even say, the most essential element, right, to the Christian's life and growth. So don't misunderstand what I'm about to say here. There's no life without the brain. That's the very seat of physical life, and it's the same with spiritual life. You start with what you know. But at the same time, make no mistake, just as James says here, the demons also believe and shudder. So it's entirely possible to know the right things and still not act on what you know. And that's a problem because it's not enough to simply know the truth. As Paul himself says, 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's what he was going for in his teaching. It wasn't just academic. It wasn't just to create a bunch of people who know a lot about doctrine. No, the aim of this charge was love. That's why he taught. As he says again in 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all the way I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Quite clearly, simply knowing the truth is not a sign of maturity if it's not also accompanied by love. Yes, it's good to learn doctrine. 
But you shouldn't judge your maturity in the faith merely by what you know if what you know has not at the same time conformed you into the image of Christ and taught you to love. I really like the way one author puts it. He says, It's a good thing to possess an accurate theology, but it is unsatisfactory unless the good theology also possesses us. Does that describe you? Would you say that you're someone who merely possesses good theology? Or are you someone who's possessed by it? Ask yourself, when was the last time, when was the last time that I sacrificed for someone else? And understand what I'm asking here. I'm not asking, when was the last time you simply wished good things for someone else? When was the last time you prayed for them, perhaps? And that's not to say that prayer is bad, by the way. It's just that it can often be used as a way to justify our inaction. Just as one commentator says with reference to the prayer that's uttered here in verse 16, he says, it's not the form of the statement that's reprehensible, but it's functioning as a religious cover for the failure to act. So again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that prayer is not an act of love. I'm just saying, when was the last time that you expressed your desire to see your brother or sister receive the things that you pray to God for by working to actively supply them with those needs? Right? That makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense that if we're saying to God, please give my brother this thing they need while we have it within our power to fulfill that request, then if we're offering that prayer in sincerity, we're probably going to take active steps to supply their need, right? When was the last time you did something like that? Because that is what faith is supposed to look like. God has made you alive in Christ to do more than just simply exist, Christian. He's brought you forth by the word of truth that you should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. You are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He has raised you from the dead. It's just not that He will make you alive at the return of Christ. It's that He's also already made you alive presently by taking a mind that was darkened in its understanding and dead and making it alive to the things of God. Your brain is back online through faith, guys. It was flatlining. It's back online through faith. And God has done this so that it might direct your spiritual lungs to breathe again and your heart to beat again. He's breathed spiritual life into you through the Spirit so that having this life, you might dedicate the members of your body in service to Him as you glorify Him. And as you glorify Him most specifically through your love. With this in mind, let's close by asking that He would supply us all with the faith needed to fulfill this purpose in us. Let's pray.